were laughing uh, while Anth was doing the welcome, which was absolutely incredible. Uh, but I've decided we need to get a restraining order put on him that whenever we're preaching, he's not allowed to do the welcomes because, because he summarizes so beautifully everything I've spent the week planning. And it's absolutely brilliant because, you know, the, the last time Chris was preaching, she sat and she's touching, she went, isn't it again? Isn't it again? This is practically everything I'm going to say. And then I was just there looking at Jenny and she's looking at me going, yeah, this is what you're going to say, which I just think, isn't that fantastic? Because what it reveals is that there's a heartbeat running through everything and that we really are onto something quite um, incredible. Um, when we say we're onto something incredible, it's quite interesting because I think what we're saying is actually nothing new. It's simply what was always there. Um, but amidst all of the mischief that kind of came in over the centuries that has been handed down to us, um, we're actually almost going the other way. We're actually almost having to chip backwards to reveal the diamond and uncover the truth of what was going on um, in those times rather than kind of look now through all of this sludge of, of all these opinions and beliefs that have happened. Um, and tonight, really, that's what I'm wanting to continue contributing to is actually really revealing the truth um, of the awesomeness of this man that we call Jesus and actually how practically that works within our lives. So I'm really excited about speaking tonight. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to see you all. Um, and I really hope that what I bring tonight inspires you and really does um, create a new sense of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A new sense of excitement, longing, that sense that actually this thing that we've connected to is good news. Um, and it is important. It is important. Um, and actually, it is necessary for us to really live in the fullness that is there for us. Um, so tonight, I am going to, I'll let you know when I want the screens up, Robert, um, the slides up. Um, oh, is your, uh, Daddy, oh, I didn't get that soon enough. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll let you know. Um, I'm going to continue tonight with um, part of the, the next part of the Toxic Whispers series. Um, I've already done two parts. Um, some of you may not have heard either of those parts. You can go online and you can listen to those uh, to catch up. I can't go through them all. But I will summarize just briefly the first two so it kind of sets you up for what I'm going to bring tonight. Um, so part one, if you remember, we had what was uh, titled The Bloodthirsty God. Some of you are thinking, whoa. Um, and we looked at Genesis and the scripture that talked about the Lord God making garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothing them. And we'd realized that over time, the whisper had ended up as God clothed Adam and Eve in skin so that he could remind himself that justice had been carried out on an innocent victim in order for him to be satisfied with them and therefore forgive their transgressions. So you can see how we'd gone from something that's not said to something that's completely different and therefore our whole lives then take on a very different image because of what we believe. Summarizing that, God needed to kill the innocent for the guilty to live and therefore God now needs blood in order for the gap to be bridged. Now some of you will be thinking, oh, well yeah, I thought that was right. I, I did as well. Um, and I can understand why he thought it was right, because a lot of things scripturally seem to, if not looked in the correct context and within its correct framework, can point towards that belief. Um, sacrifice, we understood from this first part, was something that was for man's sake 
more man's sake than it was for God's, in order to make them feel, themselves feel okay in their own skin. Remember, Adam and Eve felt that they needed their nakedness covering. Therefore, it was covered. It was actually a merciful gift from God to say, you now don't feel okay in your own skin. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to help you by covering that up if that's what you need. Yeah? So a very, very different belief to what we've had. Adam and Eve then had this belief because of, of what had gone on that somehow their stance before the Father had changed, that somehow their relationship between them and God was now all of a sudden different because of a bite of a fruit, when actually it was different but purely from their perception because now they were looking through this faulty lens of what we call right and wrong, when actually the Father had never shifted. And actually in life, we realize so many times, it's actually our viewpoint and perspective that goes wonky. And I mean, I get told a lot that actually nothing's changed. It's just that you are now looking at it from this side rather than from a correct viewpoint. And it does really make you think completely skew with about, about how things are. We looked at the word sin a little bit and realized, okay, we've understood that the whole thing of right and wrongdoing, but we realized the word summarized was a lot more to do with being separated from being forgetful of who the Father was, unconscious to who he says we are, um, and that we projected something onto the Father that was never there. So that was, that was the first one. We then went on to part two, which was the non-violent God. We called it the evidence, if you remember that, which was looking at Scripture to back up what we'd said on the first one. <clears throat> we scanned numerous passages that suggested that blood offerings were detestable to God and that he said, I've never wanted this, which again, to some of you will be a bit of a shock because it's what we've always kind of thought was there, but you can go and look, and again, it's online, you can see the scriptures that explain that. A lot of the time he's saying, all I ever wanted was your heart, you know, blood of goats and, and bulls, I don't, want, I don't want that. And we asked the question, didn't we? If God hated the blood of calves and goats so much, then therefore, when the blood was shed at Calvary's cross, it was clearly showing something much more significant than what the calves and the bulls were doing prior. Because if God didn't want the blood shedding of, of calves and bulls, then when then Jesus' blood was shed on the cross, what was that blood revealing and what was it doing? So this is now what we're really looking at because the fact is it did something but maybe what we thought it was doing wasn't as powerful as actually it was doing, which is what we're trying to shed light on. So what happens is Jesus becomes this middleman that becomes like a bull. Basically, we offer Jesus to God so he will like us. Yeah. Now, some of you will think, well, yeah, that's right. I want to believe that my Father in heaven is okay with me in spite of that, but that was an addition to reveal something to mankind, like what Ant said earlier, of who God truly is. And that's where the truth lies. Now, the theme running through both of these was that Christ came to redeem us of our faulty view of the Father. He came to blow away all of the toxic whispers that had blinded us from the truth. So that's just a brief summary there of the first two, which leads me to today, which is part three, part one, so we know they're not only just separate now, they're actually also, but just because I try and cover too much in the sessions. So part three, part one is the forsaken Jesus. The forsaken Jesus. Now, if you want to tweet, some of you like to tweet or take notes, but if you like to tweet, we're at the Rock of York. And if you want to put a hashtag Toxic Whispers on there, that means that 
any of you who are tweeting, you can go and look at what other people are, uh, are saying about it, which is great. Just be nice, okay? Positive, that's good. <laughs> right, so. One of the greatest but hardest things for a lot of believers to swallow is there's actually not one scripture in the Bible that talks about men being universally separated by God in the whole of it, right? Now, there are scriptures that potentially lean towards things to do with separation, to do with forsakenness and things like that. But as far as a blanket statement that all man is separated, universally separated by, from God because of one decision, it doesn't actually state that anywhere. And actually, one of the interesting things that I always found, did you know that in the 613 laws in the Bible, not one of them talks about separation from God or hell? Which is quite interesting, isn't it? So the whole of the, the law that was established, death was the worst thing that could happen to you. Separation from God was not mentioned, and hell was also not mentioned. Now, if the law was ultimately what God had set up in order to somehow make things okay, why was there nothing indicated that unless you keep this, you will be separate from God? It does not say that. There is nothing about eternity. It is about in that moment, these decisions will have this effect. It was very much specific to individual choices. So again, we need to be careful that we don't have a blanket statement that somehow what was going on in Eden has had this kind of thing that's made eternal consequence that man now has this broken, permanently broken relationship with God. Okay, now here where I'm going with this. Now there are scriptures in Isaiah and Habakkuk, two that I found out that potentially kind of go towards this. There's one that says, your sins have hidden his face from you, right? And one that says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Now, I'm not going to go into depth in these scriptures. Read the bit before it and the bit after it. Who's been spoken to and in what context? And you will realize that those scriptures have got nothing to do with mankind as a whole being separated from God. So if I was to get up now and say, right, I'm now going to quote from Isaiah, your sins have hidden his face from you in 2015 telling you that now, it actually doesn't fit because they, a specific group of people were being addressed. So again, when you're reading, be very careful that you look at the whole picture and see what it's actually saying. Or we can be guilty of sometimes throwing things out that can cause more harm than good, that can make people feel very unsettled, yeah? So I want to just show this image that Kev did, which sums up what I'm speaking about tonight. So I've called it the forsaken Jesus, right? And it's just a fabulous picture. So here we have Jesus broken and bludgeoned on a cross. And we have God the Father who won't look. Okay, so God the Father can't look upon his son as this is happening. Now I want you to keep that image in your head because that makes quite a statement actually of, I mean, you can say lots of different things. Um, but I want you to see that through the whole thing because I'm wanting to clarify really what was, what was going on. Now, Mark 15, verse 33, if we just put up the next slide, says this, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Elohai, Elohai, I'm not going to try and say that word, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Theologians call it the cry of dereliction where basically he was left alone. Now, read that scripture? I'm now going to tell you what the toxic whisper is of that scripture. 
All it says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But this is now what's been taught. Jesus was forsaken, abandoned, and rejected by the Father whilst he was on the cross bearing the sins of the world. Okay? As Jesus became sin for us, God turned his face away from his beloved son as God was too holy and perfect to look upon sin. And so, the separation we were supposed to feel was experienced by Jesus in order to redeem our relationship with God. The cross in the middle should have been mine. That's what that scripture has turned into. But it doesn't actually say that, but we have been taught that God was too holy to look upon sin because he was taken on the sins of the world. That's actually what I was thought it was for years. Now, there's a thing that you've got to throw out here. If it was our sins that he was carrying on the cross in order to redeem and reconcile us to God, you have to then ask the question, everybody before the cross was separated from God, which we know is not true. The fact is, you only have to look, even after Adam took of the tree and they were kicked out of one part of the garden, in the next chapter, God's making conversation with Cain. Even after Cain murders his brother, he's still then protecting Cain. So God is very much in it with people through the whole thing. But yet we've somehow come to this belief that God has to turn his face away from sin. But Cain killed his brother. But didn't he put a mark of protection on him? <gasps> so then if he could do that with Cain... It makes us have to, remember that image, have to look at that just a little bit differently. Now, <clears throat> where did we get this concept from? Again, we understood that Jesus being separated from God on the cross comes from this belief that we're all universally separated because of sin. Now, remember what we said about that. When Adam and Eve made the choice and were supposedly kicked out of the garden, if you read it correctly, they were actually only blocked from one part of the garden. That was the tree of life. Because if they had to somehow reproduce and become fruitful, they would have had to take what was in the garden out. So it doesn't actually say they were kicked out of Eden. They were blocked from the tree of life. So we have to remember that. So again, they weren't separated from even the beautiful creation that God had made. So we have to be careful, again, how we kind of come from this. Now, the cross, if we go along these lines, becomes the place where Jesus experiences the Father's justice, and this is where it becomes tough, in order that God can bless and love you instead of curse and hate you. Now, what would that say of a father if that were the truth? What would that say of a father? If he has to somehow harm something in order to like you, then we have to just ask these questions. That his anger towards sin was so huge that he desired to see his own son tortured, but at the same time hide his face away as it happened. Now, this is where it gets tricky, because if it, that's the, tr the truth of what was going on, that then is actually God, was God's desire to do that to you. Because if Jesus was the substitute for my sin, then God actually had a desire to see you tortured on a cross whilst turning his face away. Now, that's not the Father God 
that I know revealed in Jesus Christ. That's not, that's not the Father I know. And therefore, because some of you will be thinking, oh, this is breaking away from stuff. No, actually, we're just seeing what's already there and actually coming to a greater understanding of this amazing, amazing person we call Jesus and what he was trying to show to us. Now, how do you get people on board? So, for example, if you're trying to sell the message of Christianity, you will find a lot of people think that the God that I've just explained is what we're trying to sell. So, accept Jesus into your life and God can love you and redeem everything back to you because he was willing to sacrifice his son in order that God can now love and accept you. That says, but in that case then, he doesn't actually love me. Something had to go on, in, somebody had to die in order that God could actually like me. Now you say, but yes, that's true. It is true, but not in the way that we have envisaged it happening. Right, so... Is this really what Scripture tells us? Well, let's have a look. John 8, verse 29. Look at this. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Let's look at another one. John 16, verse 32. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. So there we have Jesus addressing the disciples actually over his crucifixion and his resurrection, saying that the one who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I only do what pleases him. So even then the cross must have been pleasing in the eyes of God. A time is coming when you will leave me alone, yet I know I'm not alone because my Father is always with me. So here we have a little bit of a contradiction, don't we? Because Jesus did say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But before he's, he dies, he's telling his disciples, my father will never leave me. So what's happening? You can see there's a little bit of a contradiction. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19 says this. One of my most favorite scriptures. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That right there, I think, is one of the most incredible scriptures in the whole of the Bible. I think it's brilliant because it's revealing a lot, actually, that scripture, revealing a lot. Just put up the next slide, please. You cannot reconcile something by turning your face away. Have you ever tried reconciling something with a friend by turning your face away? I don't know whether you've had any luck with that. Anybody had a look? Actually, I'm not going to look at you. I'm not going to speak, speak to you, but I'm sure reconciliation will happen. Doesn't work that way. That's not how reconciliation works, right? You cannot reconcile something whilst turning your face away. So, let me ask the question. Who was in Christ? Say it. God was in Christ. Right. Now, if sin was such a problem to God that he had to turn his face away, and this is where I get so excited, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us was an impossibility. Did you hear that? Who was the word? Yeah? And at the beginning was the word, but the beginning spoken at the beginning was God himself declaring, but then he then became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So God and Jesus, if I'm right, are one. I and the Father are one. 
Now, there would have been no stories of healing women with hemorrhaging, freeing people caught in the act of adultery, or allowing prostitutes to wash his feet if God had to turn his face away from sin. Because he could have not sent himself as Christ to reconcile all men to himself if sin was a problem to him because he wouldn't have allowed them to sit with him. Is this clear? It's exciting stuff. Now, one of the issues that we have generally is that to maintain people's theology with regards to Jesus and God, they actually want to keep them separate to justify a way of viewing life. I'm better, I've got it right, I'm saved, I'm fine, you're not, you've still got to attain that. Whereas the moment you say, no, God becomes Christ and is a tiny cell inside of a 14-year-old girl and then is manifest as this man who he himself looks upon every ailment and issue and problem with mankind and holds people's hands, that certainly... All right, Desmond. That certainly changes the way that God looks, doesn't it? Certainly changes it. Now, the only passages that refer to this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are Psalm 22, which is the same statement, some say was a prophecy of what would occur, or either written afterwards, whatever you want to view it as, but it's the same, same words, and Mark 15. So what I want to do, just in the last couple of minutes, is create a better picture by looking at Isaiah 53, which is one of the most graphic depictions of prophecy of what was going to occur at the cross. Is this making sense so far? I hope it is. Right, okay. So Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Okay, that's the first part. So he was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Now put up the next slide, please. Surely he took up what? And bore our. Not his, our. Right? So what was being placed on him or what he was taking on was not the suffering of himself because he says he was without sin. He was without separation. He was without unconsciousness and he was without forgetfulness because he knew who he was before the Father. He didn't need to act in any given way because he was completely centered in who he was. But instead, he was a man familiar with suffering and pain. So God was familiar with suffering and pain because remember, God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself he took on our pain and our suffering. Now, the only way you can experience someone else's pain is by this word that I love called empathy. Empathy. Now, sympathy is very different. Sympathy is going, oh, here, here, I can't really do anything for you, but let's go out for a cup of tea or whatever. That's sympathy. And it's lovely. There are times where sympathy works, right? Empathy has a lot more power right? It's the, it does something. And this is what empathy means. And I love the description of this. If you just put up the next slide. The ability to see the world as another person, to share and understand another person's feelings, needs, concerns, and emotional state. Who was experiencing the emotional state of mankind? 
God himself was experiencing what it was like to feel alienated, to feel like things weren't okay, to face illnesses that, you know, like we're facing at the minute with all this stuff. He was in that and he took on that into himself and experienced every emotion and feeling of every single person who was throwing the stone at him. That to me is unbelievable. I've always asked the question, what does it mean by Jesus took on the sins of the world? But I've realized now it was an absolute perfect expression of empathy that he could enter the souls and the feelings of other people and experience every heartache and every feeling that they had. And that was God, the creator of the universe was doing that for you. It's just to reconcile. It's just incredible. As Jesus fully embraces the feelings of humanity, he fully understood what it was like to be part of the first Adam. Right? You know where it all went a bit wonky way back? Right? Why did it go wonky? Because of our skew with vision, because of right and wrong. We had projected an image of God that was not there, right? And we'd come up with all sorts of stupid things, offering idols, various bits and bobs to appease the gods when God's thinking, whoa, I'm not like that. You've got it all wrong. So all of a sudden, the only way that someone can die and experience what we face is to be in it and see it for himself, right? Now, if God's going to reconcile, he can't reconcile without knowing first what is reconciling, which is why the whole thing of the cross is amazing that God came down and said, right, I'm going to feel what you feel and I'm going to embrace it. So there's lots of scripture in the Bible that talk about becoming the first Adam in order to establish a second Adam. But what I find even more incredible about that, he was willing to become the first Adam. Now you can only become the first Adam by feeling what it was like to be under that curse, which he did. He understood what it was to be separate and alienated, to be forgetful and unconscious of what God always said we were, Jesus experienced for the first time what it was like to have his spiritual vision blurred under the wrath of the people killing him on the cross. Now, what did he cry out? What did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if he was taken on board the sins of the world, sin being separation, sin being our faulty viewpoint of the Father, then what is Jesus going to experience? Jesus is going to experience what it feels like to be alienated from his father because he's taken on board the views of mankind. He came to express this message of hope and peace and he's watching these damaged, hurt people. He says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Stabbing things in his side, whipping him, pulling his skin off, watching him and mocking him. Imagine the torment and the feeling of that, but instead he says, right, I'm going to enter the minds of these people and know what they feel, know what they think, and in my death I will have experienced every emotion that they have. And from this point on in history, there will be a new covenant made in my blood that says, now you know how God looks. Now you know how God looks. God was hanging on that cross. It's just unbelievable. It excites me. So Jesus became the first Adam by experiencing what it was like to be under that curse and in the end created something quite remarkable. 
Now look at this, I'm nearly done. It was Jesus' willingness to fully empathize with our human position that he too experienced the same imagined separation that we had felt since Adam. Look at this next scripture. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Look at this. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Did you all know that scripture was in the Bible? (laughs) I haven't made that up, I promise. Yet we considered him, considered him, right? What does that mean? It was in our brains. But what's so incredible about this, Isaiah is talking hundreds of years probably before this event would unfold. How did he have that concept that somehow people would view the cross through a faulty lens, that they would believe something was happening that actually wasn't? So he said, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But look what it goes on to say. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the punishment, and again, when we use that word punishment, who was punishing him? Mankind was nailing nailing him to the cross. The punishment that brought peace was upon him and by his stripes. Did I put stripes or tripes up there? By his words, I've got tripes here on my paper. <laughs> By his tripe, we are healed. If any of you like tripes, good news to you, right? <laughs> so, God hadn't punished Jesus in some legal battle. Neither had God turned his face away. Could you put up that image, the picture right from the beginning again, please? Neither had God turned his face away, too holy to look upon sin. It was Jesus' willingness to be crushed under our human anger and sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, that caused Jesus to have his vision obscured, causing the Father to appear as distant as Adam had experienced after he had eaten the fruit. That's quite a big thing what Jesus did, to actually be willing to take that on, Think of, I know what it's like when you empathize with one person in something that they're experiencing, but to watch a whole heap of people and mankind who for hundreds and hundreds of years have missed the point of what creation was all about and what God with regards to humanity was all about and the mess that had been made, to actually be willing to take that on his shoulders and say, actually, I now get it. And now I get it, I'm in it. So from this point on, my spirit, because it talks about the Holy Spirit now being in us, He can now, because again, how does Jesus know what it's like to have cancer? How does Jesus know what it's like to have a broken marriage? How does Jesus know what it's like to have um, a miscarriage, right? What happens is, is from that experience, from God experiencing the turmoil of the cross, his spirit now lives within us and he embraces it as we go through it. Not turning his face away, but saying, you are my son in who I am pleased and I am with you. I am with you. So God is with us every single step of the way. This is not a picture you have to face in your life. If you ever, ever wake up believing that God is on a cloud and he's turned his face away from you, it's a lie. It's an absolute lie. And I'm telling you, some of us still live our lives believing that this God that we've been sold is mad at us. We do. 
And it makes me sad because there's so many people in this world who are desperately looking to believe that the creator of the universe actually likes them instead of somehow there having to be this thing that makes things okay that he can, you know, I like you now because of this, when actually the creator of the universe is pleased with me. He's pleased. And he's pleased with you. And I want what I brought tonight to inspire you because I'm tired of a message that makes people feel that somehow that they're not enough. That they're not enough. When God has said you're enough, what he did on the cross was absolutely unbelievably massive. And I want to get back to that point where we see it in its true light and start living with it within its reality and celebrating the cross. Celebrating the cross. Now, to finish off, because I will have part three, part two, over time, in a while. Um, I don't really have a conclusion, because my conclusion is actually the next part, where I kind of reveal some more stuff about it. But I'm aware that I'm not really somebody who needs conclusions. I, I'm happy for an open-ended thought, and I'll go away and for weeks battle it out, and I'm happy to change my mind, I'm, whatever. That's just how I'm wired. But I'm also aware that some people actually like to feel that there's, okay, now you've said that, give me some pointers that kind of just wrap it up and give me food for thought. So I would say, okay, that's great. I think it's right that sometimes we should clarify things, right? But I also want you, I'm gonna give you a few little things to go away and explore, have a think. Think about the stuff that's said, and if you've got any questions, feel free to ask. You know, this is, text us. It's all about the conversation and adding to it. So, these are the points I just want to end with um, that you can have a think about. So, number one, I haven't put them on the screen, so if you're taking notes, try and jot them down as we go. The cross cannot be about his turning his face away unless you separate father and son. You can only have God turning his face away if God and Jesus are separate. Remember, God was reconciling the world in Christ to himself. Two, can we believe that the cross was Jesus embracing what it felt like to live under the perceived alienation of the Father, empathizing with our fallen mind, and establishing the new covenant in his blood? The cross was God communicating that we could do nothing to keep him away from us. When God comes as man, that's proof that you can do nothing to keep him away from you. Last point. If you still want a judgment, you can have one. Because for some reason, we like the, the theology that somehow means we have to tick boxes and make everything kind of look all right. If you want a judgment, I'm going to give you one. So you're ready. You might want to write this down. It is finished. That's a judgment. It is finished. Nothing else to add. It is finished. Now, it is finished. Why was he saying it is finished? What was he completing? Because like I said earlier, although the lamb was chosen before the foundation of the world and as far as God was concerned, reconciliation was always, that's why God never had to separate himself because before the beginning, God was reconciling because it was already a done deal. It was done. Enough with the belief that we separate, separated. When he said it was finished, he was saying from this point on, whenever you look at the cross, you're not looking at the cross as a bull to make things okay with you and God. 
what I'm saying is now that back to square one, the door to you is open wide and I am always welcome, says that the curtain was, was cut in two, revealing that actually what was in the central part of the temple, there was nothing there anyway and it all being a big scam. So when he said it was finished, he was saying, did you realize that separation was a lie right from the beginning? And that actually they were keeping you out, but I never was. All are welcome. All are welcome, which is just beautiful. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave up all for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And God has chosen everybody. I'd just like to add at this point, everybody, every single human being on this planet has been chosen by God. Everybody. They just don't know it yet. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's me done. Yeah. I'm not going to sing, I don't think. don't think it needs it, but I'll let, I'll let Anth wrap up. All right, well, we'll try to dim the blinding brightness of its glory because we think the gospel is too good to be true. That's the words of Brennan Manning. And um, some of you will sit in struggle places about some of this because of the way we were raised. And here's why, because I'm afraid that I might be getting it wrong, okay? Just think about, that's where we sit. I'm afraid we might be getting it wrong. But here's what John, Jesus' disciple, says. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment, but God is love. So the issue is that this grace, this goodness, we've got to give it room to be bigger than our restrictive thinking as confined it to be because everything outside of that is driven by fear and this is setting us free from fear it's opening wide open I'm glad you all read all those scriptures from Romans chapter 8 because what can separate us what do we say then to these things if God be for us who can be against us now that that poses all kinds of problems that poses more problems than the substitutionary atoning sacrifice model poses lots more problems because it takes law and rule and condemnation out of the equation. A lot more problems. But the wonderful thing is, here's what the Bible says. Not that where grace is, be careful because it'll just enough to get some people free from sin. It says where sin is big, grace is much, much bigger than that. I believe in a big grace. I believe in a big God. I believe in a big love that's been released by the love of God. And I'd rest, rather wrestle with those issues... Because nobody's going to stand before God and say, do you know what? 
you're, you're less loving than I thought you were. You're less gracious than I thought you were. We'll all stand there and say, you were more loving than I ever imagined. You were more gracious than I ever thought. Because he's bigger, better, greater, more than. So wrestle with these things, okay? Wrestle with these things. I never want you to come here to say, oh, that was lovely because I was just told everything that I thought, so I've been confirmed as being right. What was the point? The point of this is for our hearts and spirits to begin to wrestle with some of these issues to find the bigness, the greatness, the wonder of who God really is and the wonder of his grace. If you're not into this, don't sing Amazing Grace because the kind of grace you've understood is not really that amazing. I can do that kind of grace. If you do enough to pay me to get right with me and I forgive you, I can do that kind of grace. But what about the kind of grace that says you can't do enough, you could never reach me, but I'll give it to you anyway. That's amazing grace. That's a sweet sound. That's what saved a wretch like me. That's the thing that when I was lost, I became found. And when I was blind, now I can see. And grace brought me this far. Grace is going to lead me home. I want that grace to lead you home. So just stand with me. We celebrate tonight, Father, your amazing grace for us. We celebrate your father heart towards us. We celebrate the fact that this is, gospel is bigger than we can box it in to our small lines, even theologically. And we release you, Father, to be all that you are to our generation. Let the living word who appeared in the form of Jesus continue to be the living word here today in our lives, in our hearts. The word becoming flesh, dwelling in us and dwelling among us. So that right here, right now, in the freshness of all you are, we see the glory of the Father. Full of what? Full of grace and truth. The law was never the truth. Grace is the truth. It's been with us from the beginning. It's with us now and it's going to lead us home. So bless you. Stay for some cheese. Have some prophetic dreams and tell me what you dreamed.